Welcome to this episode of Church Kramer. On today's episode, I talked to Thomas Joseph White. He's written a phenomenal book on Christology called The Incarnate Lord a couple of years ago now. But we walked through some of the big questions of the incarnation and Christology. What do we do with Jesus's divinity and humanity? What do we do with some of the biblical passages that talk about his human knowledge and his divine knowledge? What do we do with his resurrection and the fact that he still is in a human body? All those big questions that you run across when it comes to Christology, we try to answer those. So I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. As always, we are brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. You can go to csbible.com to find out more about this English Bible translation. And now my conversation with Thomas Joseph White. But first, no big deal. All right, Father Thomas Joseph White is here. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for asking me. So I wanted to, to start off a little bit talking about your background. Um, you were born in uh, Atlanta. You're uh, you know, an American who was over in the Vatican, which is, is already interesting in and of itself, but, I'm, I'm, but your life story is extremely interesting. So I'd love to hear just your upbringing, your faith background, and kind of how you got to where you are now. Uh, okay, well, you know, just to be brief about these, you know, biographical things. So I, I, I was born in Atlanta. My father is a doctor, he was or retired doctor. He was Jewish uh, from a more secular background. My mother is a Protestant, grew up on a uh, Presbyterian, Southern Presbyterian mission in the Belgian Congo, but became a nurse and went to Emory Medical School. They met there. So I was raised in a, you know, uh, religious household that was uh, non-traditional at the time, you know, in the 70s that my mother was Protestant, my father was Jewish. I was not baptized. I was not bar mitzvah. Of course, Judaism passes through the mother and my mother was not Jewish. Um, and I was, you know, an occasional participant at a PCUSA, Protestant church growing up, and then eventually went uh, to boarding school in the Northeast and went to Brown University, very secular environment. And I had, you know, very few, if any, religious, strong religious convictions and was not a baptized uh, person, right? So uh, eventually I got into philosophical questions about trying to explain what, what a human being is, what, what's the nature of, of human existence, was curious about those questions. And, you know, in reading philosophy and then later reading some different religious traditions, writings and spiritual uh, figures, um, various mystical traditions, I got very interested in the idea of religious experience or discovery of an absolute and uh, then I eventually um, started reading Christian theology, thinking that that was a way to explain uh, experiences of Christian mystics. And then, you know, what do they really believe deep down? Well, you need to read theology. And then in reading theology, I began to have a kind of experience of Christ, which seemed to resolve the question of the meaning of life, you know, mm. because uh, it seemed all of a sudden that Christ was real and present to me. So I, I was baptized by an Episcopalian um, minister. And then began to have the kind of understandable questions you would in your 20s about how to be a Christian and what to believe. And I explored Catholicism pretty uh, early on and read figures like Rap Singer Newman, John Paul II, Balthazar, uh, and as ancient figures like Athanasius, uh, Augustine, 
John Chrysostom took classes on ancient Christianity because I want to understand Christianity in its early centuries. And then that became a properly intellectual fixation. And then I got into theology. I became Roman Catholic my senior year in uh, college, and I ended up getting so into theology that I did a, you know, an MPhil, that's to say a master's degree at uh, Oxford, and then eventually later a doctorate in Oxford, became a Dominican, became a theologian, that kind of thing. So theology took, uh, as well as, as being a Christian, I began to believe very much in, in like being a theologian as my calling. Hmm. And, uh, and so that's, that's basically the explanation. Okay, forgive my ignorance here, but this is uh, interested me as you were saying this. So you were baptized Episcopalian and then converted to Catholicism. So did you have two baptisms in a span of about three years? Or how does, no, that, how does that work? Uh, the for you? Catholic Church recognizes the universality of baptism uh, as long as it's administered by, you know, the pouring of water over the head in some form, okay. uh, accompanied by the words of Trinitarian, the Trinitarian words of, of the baptismal formulation of baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the Church recognizes the validity of the baptism. You, what is typically done in a case like this is you're confirmed, but with, you receive the sacrament of confirmation. Uh, you go to confession first for everything you because you, you need you go to confession for everything that's happened in your life since baptism that might constitute sin, whether serious or or, or you know as we say venial, mm-hmm. and then then you're uh, conf- then you're confirmed and you pronounce the creed. So you say I you know I pronounce the 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 um, Nicene Creed and I accept to interpret it in the sense in which the Roman Catholic Church understands it. I ask for the fullness of the faith to be received in the fullness of faith and you take communion. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, so, you know, another, maybe kind of just Americans, evangelicals listening to this podcast um, who are, you know, interested in some of these things, when they think of a a monk or a friar, they might think of, you know, I was at a Benedictine monastery uh, actually over the summer. Um, you know, you've got all these different, different orders. And some people might think, well, you know, what, what a monk is is somebody who's quiet their whole life and prays all day and doesn't do anything. Um, but you, of course, uh, are doing much more than that. Um, and so what is, what is a day in the life of a Dominican friar at the uh, Angelicum where you are right now? Okay, well, so friars are a mixed life that say we have some kind of uh, local stability like Cistercians and Benedictines, but we can move from priory to priory and we can have external activities. In fact, we often have a lot of external activities uh, outside of our, our you know, um, cloister. Uh, so in our life, we would get up in the morning uh, early, uh, pray quietly in the chapel, meditate. Uh, Dominicans can meditate during the day whenever they want, but they're normally expected to pray silently at least half an hour. Some people do much more than that. And um, then we have uh, morning prayer, which is, you know, is in Psalms and readings of the Old and New Testament. And then we have uh, Mass. And then my day begins after that, you know, after breakfast with uh, teaching, reading, studying, writing. Um, so intellectual work, because the Dominican order is founded in a certain way for the propagation of the intellectual truth of Christianity, the order of preachers to preach to teach the truth. And I'm in an academic setting of the order. So that's primarily my, my actual work. And then in the, you know, in the afternoon, I might do pastoral work, administrative work. In the evening, we in the mid- midday and evening, we frequently have, you know, we normally have prayers, also psalmody and so forth. And then, you know, we eat our meals together. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, there's like silence in the evening after after, after the, the last of the prayer offices and meals. And uh, 
you know, so this priory I'm in is basically set up to be a writer's college, a teacher's college. It's, it's, it's a, a combination of study, contemplation, writing, and also, in my case, a lot of administrative work because I'm the rector of the university. But um, other apostolic priories have a lot more work done, you know, I'd say hospital chaplaincy, um, parish work, running a parish here in confessions, preparing people for marriage, doing spiritual counseling, visiting the bereaved, uh, listening, just giving people ordinary, you know, good counsel in their spiritual life. Um, you know, and then we can sometimes run institutions like undergraduate colleges or uh, high schools and things like that. But m mostly we're rooted somehow in a common life of, of uh, study, prayer, fraternity, and common apostolate where we work together. Yeah, that's great. And also I noticed in your background there are those uh, banjos behind you. I know that um, you are this well-known theologian and, and uh, you know, rector of this wonderful university. And uh, I think maybe the funnest thing about you and the coolest thing about you is that you're a member of a uh, band called the Hillbilly Thomists, right? Right. Well, that's not typical for Dominicans, it must be said. <laughs> but there are eight of us from the northeastern province of the United States who founded a bluegrass Americana band called the Hillbilly Thomists based on the letter of Flannery O'Connor, where she says everyone thinks I'm a hillbilly nihilist. But actually, I'm a hillbilly Thomist. And uh, we have two albums out. They're on Spotify. You can find them on Amazon and so forth. And we have a third album that's probably coming out between now and June sometime. It's being mixed right now. That's great. Well, I love Poor Wayfar uh, Wayfaring Strangers, probably my favorite uh, song of yours. So um, people need to go listen to that as well. Okay, so let's talk about your book then. This is, this is the big idea I want to talk about is your book on Christology called The Incarnate Lord. Obviously, you've got a book on the Trinity coming in the spring. Uh, so perhaps we can circle back to that at some point. But what I thought we would do is there's a, there's a million ways we could go with this, but I thought what we could do is just talk through some of the big questions of Christology, some of those thorny questions that lay people, pastors, everybody in between run into, you know, even those of us who teach for a living, uh, you know, still run into these questions with students and, and lecturing. So um, big questions in incarnation. We're, we're doing this right before uh, Christmas. We're recording this. It'll probably come out a little bit after. Um, so let's think about the incarnation. Let's take kind of the big question there first. You know, there's a lot of conversations about um, what happens with this human nature that the sun uh, takes on. You know, you've got canonicism, which takes a subtraction route. You've got sort of an addition of the human nature. You've got assumption, all these different things. So how would you talk about uh, how that actually works, for lack of a better word? Obviously, it's a mystery, but what are some things we can say about what that means for the eternal son, the, the word to take on flesh? Um, well, listen, I, I, I think... Uh, so, you know, I teach Christology and uh, I teach it both historically and thematically. So the, you know, the danger of asking a question like this is I start thinking about all the different ways to answer it. When, if I have to talk with, you know, pastors and theologians about the idea of how to begin to think about the deepest significance of Jesus of Nazareth, who he is, what he is, and what it means for us and our salvation, I do think that the, the fundamental category explored early on in the church in the fourth century at the Council of Ephesus and articulated initially clearly by Cyril of Alexandria, is that of the hypostatic union, or the union of the human nature with the divine nature in the person of the word. Now, that what's, what does that not mean? That does not mean that the humanity becomes divine, or the divine becomes human. It does not mean that, say, for example, God seeds his omnipresence and omnipotence, or that the human nature somehow becomes omnipresent or omnipotent, you have the lowliness of human nature, and you have the grand, the, the uh, in, incomprehensible majesty of the deity. But they are, without confusion, united in the one person of the Son, 
who is a divine person, so that in Jesus's own human life, in his human intellect, in his human mind, in his human activities, consciousness, feeling, suffering, and even in his human body, we encounter a person who is uncreated, a person who is the eternal son of God, the eternal word of God, and who, as one with the Father, expresses to us the inner life of God, the inner mystery of the communion of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So God takes on her, our humanity not because it not in such a way as to change his own self or change God's own inner constitution as God and Lord or as Trinity or to constitute himself as Trinity. God does not, you know, acquire a, a new identity because of the Trinity. Instead, who God is eternally is expressed to us in time by God becoming human and expressing his own eternal identity as Son, Lord, and Word in our human nature, in the most ordinary of human uh, activities from gestating in the womb to being born in, uh, of the Virgin Mary to being uh, an active, having an active life first of, of work and silence and, uh, and community life of a kind of discrete nature and then a public ministry and working of miracles and living in poverty and being uh, tried unjustly and executed uh, after extreme suffering and dying and rising from the dead in his human body in glorification. All of that is his temporal human expression of his personal identity as Son, Lord, and Word, which is an identity, you might say, from before the foundations of the world that we can only know about because uh, the Lord has become human. He's become one of us and lived among us as a human being. So to me, hypostatic union is the controlling conception. It's the union of the human nature with the divine nature in the person of the word. So when you look at Jesus, who are you looking at? The person, the who is the eternal son and word. Uh, you know, what are you looking at as a human being? But you're also looking at a human being who is God, who is Lord. Uh, so you have two what's and one who, to, to sum it up very simply in the, the Chalcedonian formula that comes after Ephesus, two what's and one who. You know, but I think the, the, the question of who he is personally as the eternal son made man, that's the controlling conception. Okay, so then when we go down the road there, you start talking about um, canonicism, talk, talking about adding the nature, you start talking about these sort of metaphysical theological things. And uh, so what are some of the problems with talking about canonicism that he has divested himself of certain divine attributes or that he's you know put them on the shelf for a while so that he can be truly human etc uh maybe the other extreme of he's added a human nature that could cause issues with thinking about the divine nature adding humanity to it or something weird like that so what are some of the the sort of uh ways you explain out why we don't want to go these different routes and what is a, a good kind of middle road there yeah that's a good question so like um there's a lot of forms of canonicism I hesitate to say I have any expertise in the subject, but I have studied a fair amount of modern uh, canonicism and written on it. And in this new Trinity book, there's a lot more than in my Christology book. Um, I mean, frequently the way it works, there, there, are, there are two classical kind of ways that, that uh, problems arise, at least the way I put it. Now other people disagree about this, of course, but one is a more traditional idea. You have enunciated already by Luther and that Calvin takes issue with, and I think rightly, which is the idea that uh, because of the uh, because of the hypostatic union, because of the human hum, because of God becoming human, the human nature takes on properties of the deity or of the divine nature. And of course, omnipresence is the most important here for Luther. It's a way he thinks about the presence of Christ in the Eucharist, not by the bread and wine changing into the body and blood of Christ, 
whereby Christ making himself present in the substance of bread and wine, wherever it is. Okay, that's a weird way to get to this Christological opinion. And, you know, there's interesting questions about the structure of Lutheran theology behind that. Uh, and one's worthy of great respect. But, but the Christological element is that you've got this kind of omnipresence of the Son, which seems like in his human nature, which seems like a confusion of the nature, as, as Calvin, I think, rightly observes, and as Bellarmine observes. The Catholics and the Reformed both had concerns about that, and I, I agree with that. Um, but the other way to make the confusion is to take human uh, I, I, uh, property tropes and assign them to the divine nature. So if Jesus suffers in his human nature, then the divine nature suffers. Um, or if um, if Jesus is temporal, lives a temporal life in his human nature, then the, the, the deity, the divine nature is, is temporal and is historicized. And that really is the way begun first by Hegel, but then taken on in some you know various different ways by um, 19th and 20th century canonicists, and Bart is the most important, he's different than Hegel, but he's the most important and influential of these. Uh, and then you get divine suffering following from Jesus' human suffering and so forth. Now, I think both these options, what you're talking about is a kind of a, an idea that uh, you have to have property transference of one nature to another if there's really an incarnation. And then there's, you know, people who then come after each of these opinions and say, wait, we don't want to have uh, mixing or transference of one nature to the other. So we need to mitigate one nature in order to make room for the other. So the classical way of doing that was kind of the Apollinarian way where you say you know, he can't be fully human. if He's really divine. He can't have a human soul. The human soul would compete with the deity. So he can't be completely human. You've got to have a truncated humanity to have a complete divinity. But today, the opposite can happen where people say he's got to have a a canonic divinity in order to have a full humanity. Like if he were really omnipotent, it would overwhelm the humanity. Uh, the humanity would be omnipotent. He's got to, he's got to seed the omnipotence or the omniscience or the, you know, the, the sort of properties that are characteristic of him as God in order to be truly human. And that's a false, I think, rivalry and opposition. Uh, and there's a lot of philosophical uh, problems that can arise that give rise. Well, sometimes those problems arise because of mistaken philosophical conceptions to see God's omnipresence in the world and uh, human autonomy as being in somehow competition with one another, mm -hmm. as if, for example, God's omnipresence to us as creatures and our human freedom are in opposition to one another. And therefore, for example, Christ being more most maximally kind of a, a, a place where God is present in a new in a new and importantly different way. Therefore, his human freedom must not be genuine, right, because the divine omnipotence is overwhelming it or or. He has to give up the divine omnipotence so he's truly humanly free. Like this oppositional thinking is erroneous. You know, we just have to have a distinction of natures. They're truly united. But here's the main thing. The more God is present to creation, the more perfect the creature is in its formal, in its formal uh, essential component as creature. Now, Christ's not a creature. He's God made a human, but he has a created human nature. That created human nature is most perfect precisely because it's a human nature of God. The more God is present and the more grace is given to us, the more we become fully ourselves as human. And so if God becomes human, the human he becomes is the most human of all, the freest of all, the wisest of all, the most spontaneous of all, the one who has the most perfect you know, moral consciousness and so forth. And so we want to affirm the, the perfection of the humanity of Jesus, not its truncation. And to be perfectly human, God doesn't have to see his divinity. Rather, he renders the perfection of his divinity present in what is most human in us. You see? Yeah. So when you think about 
one of the questions we'll start getting into some of these now you've, you've set us up really well here you know uh, the question of impeccability uh, could Christ have sinned uh, and chose not to or could he not have sinned this kind of question you know it comes up a lot I hear it from students a lot you know if he's truly human he has to be tempted like me he has to struggle with sin like me or else his temptations aren't real you know some of these questions so how do you work through the questions of the relationship between his impeccability his temptations these kind of things Well, I mean, I, I think the solidarity argument matters. So first thing to say is, you know, that the, the soteriological motif behind impeccability questions is about soteriology, uh, solidarity, the soteriology of solidarity. It matters that God became one of us, that he was subject to human weakness, the frailties of the, of the mortal human condition, to true human suffering, not only of body, but also emotional, interior, psychological, and as Aquinas says quite right, at least interior spiritual suffering of intellect and will in his heart and mind as man. God suffered deeply and grievously, and he was vulnerable. And he could experience temptation in a certain sense like us. But you don't want to overemphasize the solidarity theme in such a way as you compromise the power of Christ to be our Savior. And I don't mean his power as God. I mean his power as man. He has to be, in some sense, our, you know, we're not redeemed by God becoming himself a sinner. We're not redeemed by God becoming subject to the problems we have. So a God who's subject to, uh, you might say, internal, eternal suffering or internal uh, mutation and redefinition by suffering or human peccability and sinfulness, it's not really a God who can save us. It's a God who's gotten himself embroiled in our lack of uh, positive uh, orientation towards salvation. So we need a sinless Christ, besides the fact that the Bible teaches at least, I think, five times in the New Testament that Christ is without sin. So clearly he's unlike us. I mean, if you really take seriously the idea that the Bible says we are sinners and that Jesus is not, so and that he's like us in all things but sin, and that he really has a human condition like ours, you start to like think about that mystery. And he is in solidarity with us. He does experience temptation, but he can't experience it in terms of the same internal compromise of the first inclinations to sin. So one of the things that happens is even when we don't sin, uh, this is at least Aquinas' take on it, we can have first mo motions or movements towards the sinful object that stem from our fallen condition and the effects of original sin. Uh, so we could experience a first movement, uh, you know, whatever the standard list is, pride, vanity, lust, whatever. And it doesn't have to necessarily be something we have first consented to, but it isn't for that matter wholly perfect or innocent either because it is sign of a disfigured self or a disfiguration of our human nature so you know we have to say that christ would not have i i believe it would actually kind of go to the wall for this in terms of new testament and tradition that if christ is really our savior in solidarity with us nevertheless however vulnerable he is in his plenitude of grace and his preservation from peccability he does not experience the first interior mo motions of, you might say, inclination towards sinful objects. And so he has to experience the temptations a little bit more from the outside. And that's why the, the three temptations that is depicted in, in Matthew and Luke that he's given of the devil, they're high spiritual temptations to misuse his messianic authority in the wrong ways. Uh, and even to, like, you might say, cut corners that are um, too facile, not according to the plan of God, in order to achieve spiritual remedies. I, so I think Satan, you know, tempts us according to our state, and Christ's state is very high, and the devil doesn't really understand it from the inside, but he somehow understands it a little bit inferentially when he sees the purity of Christ 
from the outside and he tries to tempt him according to higher spiritual goods because he knows that he's dealing with someone who's of a higher sanctity that is mysterious or at least you know enigmatic to him yes yeah, so you'd say that would you say something like um you know, I, I always try to tell my students, you know, don't imagine 14 year old pimple faced Jesus lusting after girls like you do or whatever, you know, don't try to put him in your state throughout your whole life, that the temptations are more external, more spiritual kind of as you say there. So um, would you say that that that's kind of fair that the, the temptations are primarily external, not internal? Yeah, to the extent that they're internal, they have to come through him, like really scrutinizing options that don't compromise his moral integrity. Um yeah, I mean, one of the problems is just we cannot project our psychology onto Jesus because our psychology, as we know, is a mess. It's a consequential sin. So, you know, Jesus transcends our psychology, and that's more than just like a, a kind of metaphysical issue in the way you're saying, which is a very important point about Jesus' purity. It's also for our spiritual life. Like when we're in our psychology, uh, we're not particularly close to Jesus. And I, that's maybe too simplistic a thing to say. What I mean is, I don't mean that we can't offer our psychological brokenness to Christ, but I mean, in this to, it's not like as if we go, the more, it, it, I should not reason thus. The more I enter into the wounds, weaknesses, and dysfunctionality of my own psychology, the more I'm becoming closer to Christ precisely insofar as he shares in these attributes himself. I think yeah. he transcends them, and we have to learn to, to like walk with him, you know, learn to live with him. And his grace to kind of transcending those elements of ourselves. Yeah, that's good. Um, so when we talk about uh, his omniscience, you brought up omnipotence and omniscience and some of this kind of stuff. Obviously, huge question. Um, there are times where Jesus clearly seems to be omniscient. He seems to know things that nobody else knows. He can read minds and hearts and all these things, right? But then you well, have. I wouldn't, call that, I wouldn't call that omniscience. I would just say in his human mind, in his human intellect, he participates in the higher. He he receives the grace to know things that we could not otherwise know as human beings, like a kind of prophetic knowledge mm -hmm. and or maybe knowledge of his own identity, human knowledge. But that's not the same thing per se as his divine uh, omnipresence or omniscience, which, but it is a part, he participates by grace imperfectly, you know, you might say in the knowledge he has otherwise as God. No, that, that's exactly right where I'm going. Yeah. Think, you know? yeah, go ahead and parse that out some more, right? Because you have that question, you have the um, you know, he doesn't know when he's returning, for example. Well, if he's the eternal son of God and he's omniscient, how does he not know when he's coming back? So, yeah, parse some well, of that he out. Would as God. Yeah, okay, that's a particular interesting like, kind of textual question. So the first thing I'll just say, and I'll do this briefly, the first thing is just say, like, you know, the Third Council of Constantinople, whether or not you're, you know, want to be confessionally dogmatic about the councils, it's a helpful rule of thumb for reading the New Testament because it posits two operations and two wills in Christ. So two operations means there's really act divine knowledge in Christ as God, and there's human knowledge in Christ as man. Now, we don't see the divine knowledge. We infer that it's there because he's God. Well, he's told us, and we know it in faith uh, by supernatural instinct. But we, we don't, like, look at Jesus or read his words or you know and see into the divine knowledge. We infer that it's there. What we do see is that he has extraordinary human knowledge. He expresses to us. That is that which only a prophet can have or someone who's more than a prophet. In other words, the God man. And there must be grace in his human intellect that allows him to know things. And you might say operate or act in a human way that is in accord with the divine wisdom and knowledge that is in him. And so far as he's the Lord. 
so I just want to make those distinctions because I think what we're often, when we, when we engage with Jesus, the extraordinary human knowledge of the father, of who his own, of his own identity, of the sending of the spirit, of the meaning of his crucifixion, of the founding of the church, of the meaning of the sacraments, of the prophetic foreshadowings of things to come and so forth. We are engaging with Christ in his human mind and heart as illumined. He is God and man, but the, the, those sayings and teachings are coming from him in his human nature, in the operations of his human nature, in the activities of his human nature, expressing something he can know by, you might say, grace in his human soul. Uh, and that's given to him insofar as he's the God-man, and he needs to communicate to us in a human way the things that are known to him as Lord with the Father and the Holy Spirit that he wants to communicate to us in a human way. Uh, when you get to questions like Grice's ignorance, um, well, I mean, sometimes ignorance is a fact that something didn't see who touched me. And it may be didactic, but maybe not. But when you talk about something important, like not knowing the last day, that's an interesting uh, case where he says in one place, uh, the son of man, uh, not even the son of man knows, but only the father. Actually, in Acts 1, the apostles also ask him, Lord, is this the time when you will reestablish your kingdom? And he says, it is not given to me to, to reveal the times and places in which the Father will bring all things to conclusion, you know. But you will, you will, you will have to kind of basically go through history and experience the final end times as God wants you to. So he there suggests that he knows things he's not been sent to reveal. And so the one classic way of reading this, which goes back to Pope Gregory the Great, who was also you know a theologian of some uh, of some uh, profundity in the sixth century is to say that Jesus, the things he state that he, the things he claims not to know, he reveals uh, elsewhere as things that he has not been sent to reveal. And then the way you work this out is what we could call his habitual prophetic knowledge, meaning you know, just like I can have the habit of playing violin concertos, but I'm not always playing the violin. And maybe I just stopped playing the violin at some point in my life, even though I could always play it. So Christ could habitually know those things which he needed to know for the sake of his mission, but he only actuates that, uh, that human capacity to be prophetic in those times and places that it's given to him to reveal to us what we need to know for our salvation. So habitually, in his habitual capacity, perhaps he could avert to knowledge of the end times and think about it. But he doesn't, he's not moved inwardly by the Holy Spirit to actuate that knowledge and to, to turn toward it. You know, so this is an interesting question with the religion Christ now. I mean, can today, if I pray to Jesus in English, and I'm talking to him about something that I'm concerned about, you know, say I'm a nuclear physicist, should I get involved in producing nuclear weapons? You know, can Christ in glory now, as God, he can understand me, but as man, can he understand that? Can he understand English? Does he know about nuclear physics? Well, see, if you have the plenitude of habitual prophecy, even though he didn't think about, didn't know, think about English or know physics, you know, think about physics then, he can in his glory now actuate that habit and he can understand us perfectly well not only as god but also as man and so i think that this question of like what he chose what's what is meant to actuate in a given time that's very important yeah so it's you know he obviously has you might say access to omniscience to divine knowledge but that's not part of his human vocation or a reason for him to uh, engage those things in his human vocation is that maybe a way to, to summarize that? yeah i mean yeah and a, and a simple way to say this he revealed to us as in his human in his human life human teachings he revealed to us those things that we need to know for our salvation and i think he was moved to think about and know in extraordinary ways those things that he needed to know 
and think about for our salvation. So if it's in the New Testament, we probably need to know about it. And if it's not in the New Testament, I guess we didn't need to know about it. And we don't need to posit that he was thinking about it. Right. Yeah, that's good. Um, okay. So another uh, related question that is a debate uh, is the beatific vision. Does he have the beatific vision from birth? Does Is it something he develops later? Uh, you know, his, his sort of uh, does he have full knowledge of God? Does he see God fully? Does he see him as we will one day, et cetera? Um, so you argue that he does have the beatific vision. So maybe talk through a little bit of uh, what that is and why that's important to think about. Yeah, well, what I don't mean by the beatific vision is that he's in heaven while he's on earth. That's not right. really what it means. What it means yeah. is that he doesn't live in faith as we do. We do know things that are very important by supernatural faith. We know Jesus is Christ, is, is God, is Lord. We know he's true God, true man. We know that he died for our sins and so forth. Um, but we know it through a consent to the word of God given by that we're moved to make by an act of the will under grace. Uh, does Christ believe the way we believe he's Lord? Does he believe he's Lord? Does he believe in himself? Uh, and part of the reason you want to give Christ faith is in the solidarity argument that he needs to have faith in order to be in true solidarity with us. Um, but I think what that my my fear is that that transfers Christ is no longer really the savior. He's one like us awaiting salvation in this human life of faith and the father delivers him and the father becomes the savior. Mm -hmm. uh, I think to be the savior, he has to be able to communicate to us a grace that saves us. And one of the graces that saves us is union. I mean, ultimately, it's union with God. The union with God that's most perfect is in the mind and will of perfect union, which means knowing God immediately. Mm -hmm. Now, ultimately, that is for us blessedness or a beatific vision that is uh, basically um, inalienable possession of God in the beatific vision of heaven, the soul knowing God, seeing God by spiritual grace, face to face, say face to face is a metaphor for immediate intuitive knowledge of the divine essence. But in Christ's human life, he needs to have something more than faith, I think, so as to know himself, to know his divine will, uh, and to be... But I think it's also related to impeccability. He's not a human person. He's a divine person who is living a human life among us, fully human life. And in his human soul and his human mind and heart, he needs to know who he is. Mm -hmm. Now, he can just believe that he's the son of God. But, I mean, we're talking about a divine person living a human life among us. There's not a human person there. It's a kind of weird to say there's two persons in Christ. And classically, of course, that's the Nestorian heresy. Uh, we want to claim that there's one personal subject living out a human life among us. This personal subject is the eternal word. So if he's humanly aware of who he is, it seems he needs to have something more than just faith, I think. He needs to have, at least it's highly fitting to affirm, if not necessary to affirm, that he has this perfect knowledge. Now, it doesn't mean that he's in ecstasy or that he can't suffer. Christ uh, can, uh, so Thomas Aquinas argues there's a special dispensation, dispensatio is the word he uses in Latin, of Christ in his human life, uh, in this world where he's subject to all the normal, as it were, volatilities of suffering uh, and pain, including even intellectual and moral suffering of the mind and heart, the intellect and the heart and the will uh, in the midst of human existence, even as he also has this kind of immediate knowledge of who God is and knows the Father without fail, knows himself as the eternal Son, and knows the Holy Spirit. And I think there are good biblical passages to defend this view uh, as as the biblical view uh, that Christ knows who he is, knows where he came from, knows why he's in the world, and is absolutely certain of his identity by a kind of uh, something other than a consent of faith 
Um, now, how his consciousness develops from his embryonic life through his childhood and all that, I don't think that, you know, you don't have to work, we don't have to work out, a, we don't have to posit in a, a kind of a docetic or artificial and non-human consciousness developmental life. Like, you know, we don't have to have an embryo who's thinking about things that other people wouldn't be thinking about as embryos. We can have a normal developmental consciousness in all the phases and states of life that are typical of a child. But there would be, because of the vision or the immediate vision of God in the heights of his intellect, some kind of pre-syllogistic um, intuitive awareness of the presence of the Father. He would have some kind of intuitive awareness of his own identity, some kind of intuitive awareness of the Holy Spirit. And that would then manifest as his consciousness became more um, conceptually ornate or psychologically complex in the way that we do as we reach the age of reason and become adolescents, become adults. He would take on a greater, you might say, active human consciousness or awareness uh, in a normal human psychological way, a human psychological consciousness of his own divine identity aided by the immediate vision or the beatific vision, which allows him to kind of have that deeper, more fundamental background intuition of his own identity as son and Lord. So Something you, like that. Would you do anything with, you know, uh, Luke chapter two, you know, uh, I'm in, uh, I have to be in my father's house, you know, him wowing the the teachers, these kind of things. Like, is that is that something of a of a kernel of that idea? Well, okay. So in chapter, so you have both. When the, you know the child who's like whatever ten or twelve years old who goes missing and then is found, he seems both to know the father as his father, and by the way, he's absent three days. It clearly is a prophetic symbolism of the death, yeah. and it's a Marian preparation, preparing the Virgin Mary for the death of Christ. Right. So there's a kind of he seems like he already knows about it may be possible to read it. It's not just Luke is saying this foreshadows the passion, but Jesus, the young child, is already educating her to the, the reality of the passion, which was already predicted with the, the prophecy to Simeon just before when he was a baby. So it seems like he may be aware of the passion. He's definitely aware of the father. Um, and that's like an extraordinary awareness there, even in a, you might say, a young adolescent Christ. Now he also it also says he went back down to uh, he went down to Nazareth and he was subject to them and he grew in wisdom and holiness yep. and I think the growth there is a, a kind of normal human acquaintance is a normal human acquisition of knowledge there was acquired human knowledge he's not just learning how to do carpentry by um, infused prophecy he, he has a living human mind and um, I don't think he became more holy. But I think he um, expressed his own holiness as, as the God-man and in his perfection of grace. He expressed it in more perfect ways by living out the holiness in more active ways as he began his ministry. Yeah, that's, that's helpful. So um, when we think of the resurrections, we talked a little bit about this, you know, man in heaven or this man who is, who is still, uh, he's still, hypostatic union still there uh, by all accounts going to be there. Uh, the, why glorified, it, the glorified humanity of Christ endures forever. So why is it a, why is it important for us to affirm that? What are some of the kind of obvious um, things you would say that okay, it's it's good for him to or proper for him to keep his human nature for eternity and not just sort of abandon it once he's done all the suffering stuff? Um, we know it in faith because the person we know in faith is Jesus Christ, the Lord, who is both God and human. We don't just pray to Jesus as God who became human and ceased to be human, or 
as a man who was somehow divinized, and even worse, a man who became God and then ceased being human. Those are all incoherent narratives. Uh, to really pray to Jesus in a personal way as Lord and Savior is to pray to one who is both truly God and truly human. The second thing is that reveals to us something about the intentions of God and who God is. It reveals to us the fidelity of God, who has not only become human, but intends to be in solidarity with us, human forever. Mm -hmm. That's the ultimate sign of the fidelity of the covenant of God with Israel and with humanity, effectuated in the Old and New Testaments, that God should create us in his image and become one of us in such a way as to manifest his identity to us forever in his human nature and his solidarity with us and fidelity to us forever in being human with us. And then the third thing is it reveals to us that if he's going to be human forever and alive in the glory of the resurrection, we are meant to be alive forever with him as the head who is the member, as the head of the body of the church, we who are his members, mystically, the mystical body of Christ, we who receive his grace and truth, we're meant to be alive forever in the resurrection with him. And so we don't just hope for life of the soul after death and the vindication of the grace of Christ in final, you know, personal judgment, individual judgment, and individual beatitude, and uh, glorification of the vision of God after death for our souls. We also hope in the resurrection of the body, and even, you might say, to put it in the most, you know, ultimate terms, of an eternal visible church, because when you have corporate beatitude in soul and body, you have the body politic of Christ, you have the, you know, the, the corporate visible life of the you might say, the holy liturgy of the church eternally. And we don't know what that will be like, uh, of course, precisely, but there's some anticipations of it indicated in the book of Revelation and written about in the great tradition. You know, so we have to think about the kind of, you might say, final corporate ecclesiology that's mm. implicated by the idea of being saved in soul and body and resurrected, divinized, glorified in soul as well as in body. And final final question on uh, the Christology thing. Something we've we talked about a little bit as we've gone through here too is the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the human Jesus. So you've got you know different positions on that. You know, obviously some of the canonic stuff we've talked about that he needs the Holy Spirit in order to enable him to do divine things because he's divested himself of them. Those kind right. of things. So so how do you talk through the role of the Spirit in the life of Jesus? Well, there's a great book on this by Dominic Legg, L-E-G-G-E, called The Trinitarian Christology of St. Thomas Aquinas from Oxford University Press. I highly recommend it because I think it's a, the most authoritative and helpful uh, piece of writing on this topic. But to put it in a nutshell, if you hold to a traditional Western Augustinian reading of the scriptures with regards to the procession of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and the Father is the eternal word of the Father, who therefore we can think of in alignment with analogy to the similitude of the human act of the mind of knowing. You know, the, the human, God eternally loves himself and loving self. Sorry, God eternally knows himself and in knowing himself begets the eternal logos in whom is present the plenitude of the divine life nature. So the Father transmits all that he is as Father to the Son, to the Word. And then there's the analogy of the Holy Spirit, who is proceeds as love proceeds from knowledge. So the Father, in not only knowing himself, begets the word, but in loving himself, spirates the spirit with the Son as that spirit of love that is the eternal love of the Father for the Son and of the Son for the Father. And um, in, in this reading, even when Christ becomes, when the word becomes, uh, when the word becomes flesh or the Son of God becomes human, 
the spirit still proceeds from him as Lord. That's to say, it's the spirit of the Lord in the language of Paul, or uh, is in John 14 through 16 is basically taught, at least suggested, but probably taught, I think. The spirit is sent from the father and the son as the spirit of the father and the son. And that's processional. Uh, that That is based on the transcendent eternal processional order of Trinitarian life, where the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. However, in his human nature, Jesus is moved inwardly by the grace of God. He is God, but in his human nature, he also needs grace and, and receives grace to live as man in accord with the with the inner, the, the, with, with, to live in accord with the wisdom and love of God in his own inner promptings of the grace. And there, as man in his human mind and heart, he's moved by the Spirit. Yeah. Right, so the Spirit, as God, as Lord, he sends the Spirit. As man, he's docile to the Spirit. And this is totally coherent. And actually, you know, St. Thomas has a pretty good, worked this out pretty well, pretty good, in a pretty coherent way. And Father Legg, uh, documents this and i think helps explain it, the mystery or at least you know indicate the mystery very helpfully yeah so we don't we don't say that he um divested himself of divinity and the holy spirit just sort of mediates all that to him but that um he is truly a human who is dependent on the spirit in the same ways that that any human at least in, in similar ways that any human would be dependent on the spirit yeah well now of course what you just said that we don't believe that there are protestant theologians today who do believe in you know, one of them is a very good friend of mine, and I'm involved in a long-standing argument with him about the, you know, canonic topics. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think that it's good to say not only is it like us, but actually, you know, it's because Jesus in his human life was docile to the Spirit and merited our, our the grace of our salvation, that then the Holy Spirit can transmit to us in light of the merits of Christ the grace such that we can be conformed to the life of Jesus and live after the pattern of the life of Jesus, sinners though we may be, progressively, a life of fidelity and conversion, wherein we become conformed to the Spirit after the pattern of Christ. Yeah, that's good. Okay, final question, and then I know uh, we need to get going pretty quickly, but um, Aquinas is becoming you know, popular in Protestant circles uh, once again. There's been books on it, you know, Aquinas among the Protestants. And, and like I mentioned to yeah. you uh, before, you know, a lot of us uh, Protestants are enjoying reading him and some of the Thomas tradition. I know you've been involved in some of these conversations of reform Thomism and Protestant reception. So what are some of your thoughts on that? I think, you know, you, you, I'm, I'm guessing you wouldn't say that Aquinas is uh, more of a proto-Protestant than he is a Catholic, of course. But um, oh, how no, do you think no. through some how would you think through some of those things in terms of, of how Protestants are receiving him and, and what good is happening there? Well, I have, I guess I have three thoughts. I mean, the first is, uh, and I say this with great respect and, and admiration from, you know, the, the Protestant intellectual tradition, the Reformed intellectual tradition. Um, you know, when you look at modern and contemporary Protestant thought, if you're trying to go deep, you have to figure out, like, where are your real options? Obviously, you've got the, the, the older, you know, sources, if you're reading Luther, Calvin. And then you've got maybe the scholastic traditions and the other sort of major figures in those traditions in the pre-19th, 20th century uh, context. But when you get to the modern context, a lot of this stuff, basically you have Karl Barth, obviously, you have figures who are in some way in his ambit, like Jungle, Moltmann, uh, Pannenberg in his own, in a different way. Um, but when you're looking for major inspiration in modern, dogmatics that isn't based on 
the reformed scholastic traditions, if if you if you if you acquire dissatisfaction with Bart, whatever reason, you need to find extremely sophisticated theology that is doing something else. And when you look at the Thomistic tradition, what you find is very classical sources rooted in scripture and patristics that has a high medieval pedigree where there's the scholastic sophistication, but there's also still a sense of mystery. It's not rationalistic. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's responsible analysis of mystery for the church, the life of church teaching and preaching uh, for personal contemplation and and the pursuit of union with God and holiness. And then you find there's this entire tradition of commentorial reflection on Thomism, dogmatic, moral, and spiritual that goes all right up to last, you know, to like last week because there's just so much written. So you have a viable tradition intellectually for how to be a modern Christian intellectual rooted in ancient sources with a very refined medieval uh, pedigree that's articulated in a living tradition. It's very hard to find something else like that. Mm. So that's the first thing. I mean, I think it's normal to gravitate towards Aquinas for any serious thinking person. Plus, he's a serious philosopher. I mean, you tell people who don't even believe in God and they're like, you know, just philosophers in the academy that you are a certain kind of a certain kind of expertise on Aquinas. Like you, they definitely respect that, and you can hold your head up. And that that's a good sign that there's a certain universality of engagement that's made possible by the Thomistic tradition. The second thing I'd say is. There are certain senses in which no Protestants can be harmed by reading Aquinas. Uh, first of all, a lot of it was assimilated into the Reformed Scholastic tradition, or there's kind of a conversation with it going on in the Reformed Scholastic tradition. Sometimes it's just a very strong overlap. He may be a more sophisticated version of it than you sometimes find in this in the Protestant successors. I mean, that's true too. If you're talking about Catholics, Catholics who write about Aquinas are often less satisfying to read than Aquinas. So um, you know, I think. there's a lot of commonalities Uh, and there's a lot of areas where I think you can study Aquinas without uh, immediately having to broach the deepest controversies of reformed Roman uh, dialogue, or if you like reformed Roman uh, contrast. Um, So, you know, you know, first stage, you can study the Trinitarian theology of Aquinas and be perfectly at home with it because it's very like uh, something you could find in some Reformed and even Lutheran traditions that are scholastic. Mm-hmm. However, I will say this, this is a third idea. I mean, it is dangerous in some sense for a Protestant to read Aquinas. Now it's just dangerous to be a human being because it could lead you anywhere to study and think for yourself, but it could even lead you to become Roman Catholic. And I do, I do, I say that playfully, but I also say it like kind of uh, is a serious point in the sense that, like, you, you go something that seemingly is benign as the Trinitarian theology. I mean, there are the councils behind that. So there's this idea of a common uh, universal vocabulary, uh, of commitments to norms of, of discourse among theologians where there's ground rules based on, like, the Fourth Lateran Council or, you know, the teachings of Nicaea. And we were talking in Christology about uh, Ephesus, Chalcedon, Third Constantinople. And Aquinas just takes those things as normative. Yeah. And so once you, and if you start to believe that he might have a good explanation of the Eucharist, and therefore the Council of Trent has a good explanation of the Eucharist, then you could, you know, have wonder, you could start to worry the Council of Trent might even be less easy to dismiss about things like, you know, justification, and, and then the ground starts to shake. So, you know, look, I think it's normal to think that that could happen to people, and if enough Protestants read Aquinas, well, that does happen to some people. It will happen to some people, and some of them will spend some of the time. But I, I think that that's, you know, 
look, you can you can become a Catholic reading Bart or Calvin if you start to think the dogmas matter. And then you say, well, wait a minute, who still believes in dogmas? Uh, I think I might become Catholic because I'm starting to believe in dogmas. That happens all the time. I meet people like that happens all the time. So I, I don't know. If you ask me, like, is it really... Uh, is he is he is he like under strict ownership of the Catholic Church? I mean, is is Bart or, or is or Calvin or Bart under strict ownership of the Protestants, or can I read them? Uh, it seems like I can, and I can like engage with them. So I think it works the other way too. Is there is there a single Protestant theologian that you read that say that you say if there's one Protestant theologian that could make me swim back across the Tiber the other way? Who's your who's your favorite? Who's who's the one that you respect and like the most? Um, Protestant theologians who've been, I mean, in, in, I mean, for myself, I've had a lifelong interest in Karl Barth's thought. Uh, there are many things about Barth that that frustrate me, but there are also intriguing ways he tries to articulate the um, the meaning of Christian identity in the modern world that I find intriguing. Um, I won't be as mischievous as to say that my favorite Protestant thinker is Hans Urs von Balthasar. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that um, I think that um, C.S. Lewis is a, is probably the modern apologist we can learn the most from, even if he's not the great theologian that Karl Barth is. I think his his way of speaking and, and communicating is unparalleledly clear and, and very very important. Uh, I, I'm I've always admired Calvin. I mean, I disagree with Calvin in so many ways, and but I think in terms of a, articulating the essential spirit and form of protestantism i i have all i you know this is very controversial of course as a as a in terms of the pure idea of protestantism i've always preferred him to luther as a better articulator of what i take to be the norm and the, you might say the inner rule of protestant thinking that's just my point of view and uh you know other people are much more even catholics in ecumenism prefer luther to calvin sometimes but some people prefer Calvin to Luther, both in Catholic ecumenists and, and, and Protestants. And I've always thought that, that Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion is the most masterful synthesis of Protestant theology in, in, in terms of a genius of communication. Even if there's just elements of it I just forcefully disagree with, I just have great respect for the, the monument, intellectual monument that is the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Yeah, that's good. All right. Well, thank you. I know you got to go. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk through this. I could have done this for uh, two more hours with much more questions. So maybe I'll try to rope you back into a round two at some point. Well, I'd be happy to do that. Maybe once the Trinity book comes out soon. And, you know, uh, I'm really honored to talk to you. And, uh, um, you know, we're Protestants and Catholic servants of Christ. And uh, we seek the truth together. And I'm, I'm really happy to be here today and talk to you. Appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you.